Key Economic Releases Affecting Fixed Income Yields Insights into Sectors Influencing Fixed Income Securities How AAM Plans to Capitalize on These Themes for Your Fixed Income Portfolio The Portfolio Fix is a podcast series featuring members of AAM's investment and portfolio management team. We will discuss the timely issues affecting the fixed income investments of our insurance clients. Welcome to another episode of The Portfolio Fix, a podcast series from AAM. My name is Patrick McGeever and I'm a member of AAM's investment team. Today, as usual, I'll be speaking with Marco Bravo, who will provide AAM's latest views of the economy. And then I'll be speaking about the recent price moves in natural gas and oil and a potential multi-trillion dollar market opportunity for energy companies looking to reduce carbon emissions. So with that out of the way, good afternoon, Marco. Thanks, Pat. Thanks for joining us. Um, It's been a real busy couple days here uh, on the economic front. Over the past several days, we've received key pieces of data on two critical items we monitor, jobs and inflation. So what do you say we start out with jobs? Uh, The headline from Friday's employment report was pretty disappointing, um, in my opinion. But why don't you tell me what you took away from the release? Yeah, it was was a little weaker than expected, for sure. Um, In fact, the September employment report was the uh, second consecutive month where job growth uh, came in weaker than forecast. And the 194,000 new jobs added during the month of September uh, was the weakest so far this year. And, um, you know, we saw weakness in the leisure and hospitality sector. And you think about those two sectors, kind of consumer facing sectors, which could be the result of the increase in in COVID uh, uh, cases. Um, less people out and about uh, due to health concerns. Uh, having said that, we also saw a fall in the unemployment rate from 5.2 to 4.8, which on the surface looks positive, but when you kind of dig down, uh, it was partly due to a decline in the labor force, which is not a positive. Uh, we can't have people uh, leaving the labor force. Uh, so we'll keep an eye on that going forward. It's interesting, you know, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, there's over 10 million job openings currently, uh, and yet total payrolls are still almost 5 million less than where they were Mm -hmm. pre-COVID. So it's it's clear that employers, business owners are having difficulty attracting workers, and that could be why we're seeing, you know, somewhat strong upward movement and gains in average hourly earnings. They were up 0.6% in September. They're up 4.6% year over year, which is the highest year over year increase. If you exclude kind of what happened as soon as the economy began to reopen, exclude those few months, uh, that 4.6% year over year increase in in average hourly earnings is the highest uh, in the last 14 years. And that definitely has implications and worries with respect to uh, inflation and uh, will companies begin to pass uh, the cost of higher wages onto consumers. Right. I, that leads into my next question, actually. Uh, the the fact that employers can't get employees is just another example of 
a supply chain issue, I think. Um, you, you just can't read business articles right now without there being a mention of supply chain issues, be it in uh, inflation, be it in, in housing or labor or materials. So uh, what have we learned in recent days on the inflation front? Well, today the September CPI consumer price index uh, report was released. Uh, the headline number was up 0 0.4, which was just slightly higher than consensus forecast. And the core number, which excludes uh, food and energy, which tends to be a little bit more volatile, uh, was right in line with expectations up 0.2%. It's a little bit higher than where it was last month. Uh, but on a year-over-year -year basis, you know, the headline number is up 54 uh, and core is up 4% <clears throat> on a year-over-year. -year. If we take kind of a little bit deeper dive into the numbers, uh, inflation last month, uh, we saw price increases in energy, uh, in food, and shelter. And shelter, I'm sure, is going to grab the attention of many investors because that would signal that uh, perhaps inflationary pressures are not transitory and we may start, we're, we're starting to see kind of sustained price increases. And um, you're right, you know, I think here is a combination of supply chain disruptions, uh, including uh, shipping challenges and rising uh, wages, all putting pressure on certain segments of the economy. Uh, we did see prices, uh, for example, used cars, apparel, and airfares uh, fall. But again, if you think about it, consumer-facing industries uh, in a period of time where there's probably less demand due to uh, the rise in COVID cases. Okay. Uh, but inflation is definitely something that we and, and other market uh, participants are, are watching closely. Okay, Marco, let's wrap up this segment by updating our listeners on AM's views on economic growth and interest rates. Where do we stand? Well, on the economic growth front, um, we've had the view, at least over the last few months, that the risks are skewed to the downside relative to consensus. Uh, consensus estimates are calling for GDP to increase by 5.2% in the second half. Uh, we think it's more likely that growth comes in below that and not above it. Although we're still expecting positive growth for sure, uh, but the primary risks to economic growth, we believe uh, persistent high inflation that could lead to um, a more than expected tightening by the Fed and the supply, supply chain bottlenecks that, that we just spoke about. Uh, with respect to uh, inflation, you know, our view is that it runs uh, above consensus forecast for this year and next year uh, for the reasons we talked about. Um, and so the impact on treasury yields, you know, we do think that 10-year uh, yields, which have risen recently due to higher inflation expectations and a Federal Reserve that appears ready to begin tapering their bond buying program, uh, we think that the yields have a little bit more room to run higher uh, through the remainder of this year. Uh, the 10-year yield is up 54 basis points year to date. Uh, and we're projecting, you know, 10-year yields to end somewhere in the, call it the 1.6 to 1.7% range. Um, as far as the, you know, the shape of the yield curve, we think short-term rates, uh, at least for the next little while, will remain pegged to Fed funds. We're not expecting the Fed to begin raising rates probably until 2023. 
And so the yield curve this year should steepen as long-term rates move higher. Uh, but as we go get into 2022, especially in the second half, as the market begins to anticipate that liftoff in, in Fed funds, uh, we think that would cause the yield curve to flatten as short-term rates begin to anticipate that first rate hike by the Fed. Okay. That's great, Marco. Very informative as usual. So thank you very much for that. Thank you, Pat. Hi, Pat. Uh, our listeners are probably used to hearing you ask uh, the questions, but today we're going to change things up a bit and ask you a few questions. Sounds good. You recently did a uh, presentation on carbon capture and sequestration, and I thought maybe that would be a topic our listeners would like to hear about. No, sounds good. It's been uh, something that's been discussed quite a bit by the energy uh, industry, and um, definitely it's been a topic that the banks have been promoting over the past, uh, call it, three to four quarters. Sounds good. Um, first off, why don't you give us a quick overview of carbon capture and sequestration and just kind of uh, why it's important? Sure. So. Um, Carbon capture and sequestration is the process of actually capturing carbon dioxide in an industrial process like natural gas production or chemical manufacturing or cement production, purifying that carbon dioxide, then shipping it to a facility where it can be stored permanently. Um, So if you think about a conventional process, think of a natural gas well that produces natural gas before it ends up in your home it gets shipped to a natural gas processing plant there it goes through a number of processes to remove impurities like ethane and and propane Uh, and in that process they also remove carbon dioxide Um, more and more uh, this carbon dioxide is is captured at that processing plant it's then shipped to storage facility where it's it's permanently kept at bay. Um, there's also more, um, I call it new technologies such as direct air capture that's being tested by uh, oil and gas companies. So think of your furnace downstairs in your basement. There's an airflow that goes through a filter uh, to keep the impurities out of your home. Well, Occidental is testing a process in the oil fields where there's plenty of carbon dioxide in the environment, um, but they have a football field worth of air filters out there, and they're collecting the air from the environment. That air goes over a filter that's lined with a chemical that um, basically attaches to carbon dioxide. Once that filter gets full, it's then put into a solution that creates a more pure carbon dioxide uh, pellet. Once that carbon dioxide pellet, they throw that into a a heating facility, it's liquefied, and then it's theoretically shipped to a carbon storage facility. So uh, those are the two main concepts. One, the first one has been widely known and available for years. The last, the direct air cap, capture is more of a, a, a process that's just in the testing phase at this point. 
That's interesting. A uh, lot of a uh, lot of developments to watch there. Some pretty pretty big ideas. Um, right. Whenever big we ideas, have a big risks. Yep. Yep. Whenever we have a discussion, that's where I was going. Whenever we have a discussion about um, our path to decarbonization, uh, you and I have talked about a number of topics, and uh, the numbers get pretty big. Yep. Um, can you touch on the economics of carbon capture and maybe how we should think about the investment needed to achieve uh, some of these goals? Sure. So um, the the numbers are huge. Uh, and just to give you a, an example, um, ExxonMobil, they are uh, proposing a carbon capture facility down in Houston. Uh, and it's a $100 billion facility and the concept would theoretically ca capture 100 million tons per year down in Houston. Uh, it's expected to be operational by 2030 and fully operational by 2040. But this would only, if, if this facility actually gets built out, it only would capture about 1% of what is needed to actually meet the uh, Paris Agreement. And so, the numbers get pretty large, but we're to to meet that Paris Agreement is anywhere between one trillion to more than two trillion dollars. So it's just a it will take a huge effort and likely to require a lot more public policy support. Yeah, definitely a lot of public policy support with a lot of the the topics we discussed, uh, which which brings up the forty five Q tax credit. Um, I keep hearing more about that. It sounds like it's been around a while. Um, why is it getting so much attention now? Sure. So uh, the 45Q tax credit was initially established by Congress back in 2018. Uh, it was, at that time, it gave a tax credit of $20 for each ton of carbon dioxide that was captured and sequestered. Uh, because it costs a lot more than $20 per ton, it wasn't widely adopted. Uh, because of the green initiative, industry proposed expanding that tax credit in 2018. And, and at this point, it's up to $50 per ton of carbon dioxide uh, captured. Uh, it's gotten a lot more, um, call it, uh, recognition or press time recently because of the proposed budget reconciliation that's working its way through Congress right now. Uh, in it, the proposed 45Q tax credit is $120 per ton of CO2 captured. And that makes a lot of those industrial processes that I spoke about earlier, it, it makes actually capturing carbon much more economic. And so that's why it's getting a lot more press at this point. Got it. Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely a lot in that bill that we're waiting on to see. It impacts a lot of a lot of the spaces we cover, it, right? Energy. It sure does. It's very fluid right now. But uh, the reason we spoke about this earlier is because, hey, we want, want to be in front of it. Um, and as the legislation was laid out, um, it certainly makes the potential for carbon, carbon capture uh, more likely than it was even a year ago. That sounds good. Um, so, so that's kind of what's going on with carbon capture and decarbonization. Um, but I wouldn't I would want to take this opportunity to also give you to touch on a lot of topics that are uh, that we're seeing right now in energy. 
Uh, what's happening on the ground right now? We're sure seeing a lot of natural gra- headlines with natural gas prices. Uh, why don't you touch on um, some of your other thoughts in the industry right now? Sure. So, uh, first of all, we have to distinguish between what's going on in Europe and the United States. I should say Europe and and uh, Asia and the United States. The natural gas market is almost two or three different markets, which makes it very different than the oil market. Uh, what's going on in Europe right now is that uh, demand for electricity was greater than it was expected to be because it was unusually warm. Uh, combine that with the fact that wind out of the North Sea was not as great as expected, re- led to a situation where demand for natural gas-fired electricity was high. So that's the first issue. But then, secondly, there's been a lack of natural gas supply from Russia over the past several months. And thirdly, there's just been an overall lack of natural gas supply from their own uh, activities there. So you take those three items uh, and heading into the potential for a colder winter leads to a situation where it's almost the exact opposite of where we were with oil back in March of 2020. Back then, we had a all this supply with nowhere to put it in inventory, and so price, prices plummeted. Now it's just the exact opposite, where we have a potential for increased demand heading into winter with virtually no inventory available. So you're lead, that's leading to natural gas prices that are spiking. Um, we think that'll get worked out though over the next several quarters as Russia reestablishes more supply into the region and just overall demand destruction because of these uh, natural gas prices that are well above their um, their break-even cost to supply. So that's what's going on in Europe. Uh, in, in the U.S., the conditions are, are pretty strong um, as well. Production and uh, demand for natural gas have been, I would say, pretty much as expected, but LNG exports have significantly increased over the past several years, and, and that's leading to an inventory level that is well below the five-year average. And so uh, conditions are very supportive for natural gas right now, and and we're using $4 per MCF in our models. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting update. Definitely a lot of uh, headlines coming out of natural gas, that's for sure. Yep. Uh, And it wouldn't be, uh, you know, we can't conclude any energy discussion without getting your thoughts on oil. Um, just touch on what the fundamentals look like right now and, and kind of your thoughts going forward. Sure. So since May of 2020, demand has exceeded supply by about 2 million barrels per day. And so, um, and, and that's largely due to the supply cuts from OPEC and Russia and to a lesser extent, just supply reduction out of the U.S., so that entire bloated inventory that we had caused by the COVID uh, and economic shutdowns, that entire inventory has been depleted. And so now we're, we're looking at a future where demand is expected to return to pre-COVID levels within the next quarter. 
And the question is, will there be enough supply to meet that growing demand? Um, and there's some real questions about whether or not OPEC will be able to, to meet that supply. Right now, OPEC plus Russia is supplying well below what their quotas are. And there's questions about whether that's because they want to keep supply off the market or because they just can't supply the market. Um, and then as far as every other oil producer out there, there's a question of whether or not they'll be able to do it. Right now, capital spending in the upstream market is about $300 billion per year. And this is at the same level as where capital spending was back in 2005. And so you're looking at demand approximately 15% greater than where it was back in 2005 and, and no um, qu significant questions about whether supply will be able to meet that from the, the international oil companies and independents that we follow. So we think conditions are also supportive of oil prices right now, and we're using $70 in our models. Well, that's great, Pat. Um, yeah, there's definitely no shortage of uh, topics coming out of the energy space right now and definitely keeping you on your toes. No doubt about uh, that. Well, I think, I thank you for joining us today. Um, I appreciate you uh, uh, joining me and, and getting the listeners up to speed on what your thoughts are in the energy space. Uh, it's definitely an exciting time. Oh, hey, Andy, thanks to you for uh, taking the time to discuss another ESG-related issue with me. Um, I also want to thank the listener for taking the time to listen to our podcast. If you have any questions, please reach out to your portfolio manager or our marketing team at aamcompany.com. During our next podcast, I'll be joined by Marco and another member of our investment team to discuss a timely issue affecting the fixed income markets. Thanks.